Faith and Fable, pastoral podcast that discusses common and often controversial topics from a biblical perspective. My name is Matt Miller. And I'm Matt Henry. And welcome back. Been a while. Yeah. How long? Oh, it's, I don't know. It's got to be close to a month. No. You don't think so? Let's just say no. (laughs) (laughs) No. (laughs) And and hope it hasn't been a month. I feel like I forgot how. Yeah. how, How to podcast. Yeah. So you can either hit fast forward or you can hear us explain why we took a break Been a lot yeah. of stuff going on well yeah well yeah but for me not only did i take a short vacation which i'm not apologizing for even though you showed up there and we both thought about doing a podcast while on vacation i almost brought it yeah and i'm like you know i don't want to i don't want to impose for him to make him feel like he's gonna Meanwhile, do work. i'm thinking I wonder if he'd bring the podcast stuff up. <laughs> but anyhow, we also both, with all the riots and everything else, we just got kind of sick and tired of doing everything that we were doing on Black Lives Matter, critical race theory, and we're still in it. In fact, we're, we got a podcast on Jamar Tisby's book, Color of Compromise, and we just kind of got sick and tired of dealing with it. Yeah. Although one of the things that we... Uh... Oh, by the way... Remember that we usually do podcast taping on Tuesday, so the lawnmowers aren't there? It's a Thursday. It's a Thursday. <laughs> so if you hear a rumbling in the background, that's our lawnmowers, lawn mowing. Yeah. Well, so we have gotten some requests to do some episodes on uh, revival uh, or revivalism. And they call it revival, but they mean revivalism. Yeah. Yeah. And so I started reading up on some of that stuff. And I sent you the text that has been very refreshing to read that after spending the summer reading the many books that we have on this other stuff. Yeah. And there's more books coming out. We're at some point, we're just like, you know what? They're all saying the same thing. So I don't know. Everyone's got to capitalize right now. Oh man. Make some money. And now's the time to do it. Yeah. But regardless, I, uh, I think that you guys will enjoy once we get away from the Black Lives Matter kind of stuff. We still have to deal with it, but um, we also have some other things like revival and revivalism um, because it's it's something that it just uh, brings a lot more confusion to it than people understand. So I hope we can bring some light to that subject. Yeah. Well, and we got some changes happening at the church. Yeah. So that's been yeah. Also, another thing that we're doing hence a little bit of a break but but strangely enough as this guy goes by uh strangely enough our church has grown in the midst of the whole virus thing and uh shutdowns and riots and stuff it's been it's been strange isn't that bizarre yeah yeah i mean you didn't meet for six months right six months yeah uh, they the movie theater kept you guys out and you, now you have more people grew, grew by 30 percent. yeah isn't that crazy with but, no building but the whole point of that shows that I think a lot of pastors, they're, they're thinking we'll play it safe and that that's the smart route and they're preventing their people from gathering and the people want to gather and the people, and I don't really care what people want as much as 
they want to gather because they know they need to gather. And so by having ourselves open, it's bringing people who um, are just hungry for fellowship. They want to hear the voices of the people sing. You know, that thing that Doug Wilson had up in Moscow, Idaho, he, um, it's Moscow. Um, they, uh, I mean, they, they're just singing songs. They got arrested, but there's, there's something that struck a lot of people deep in their heart, just hearing the people of God uh, shamelessly sing praises to God, to God. Yeah. So what do we got today? So we're going to still, we're on systematic theology three, uh, working through the Holy spirit. And so we're now talking about the role of the spirit in the new Testament and, we, we did one on the old and, and then I said we we're going to have to do a few on the new but we so so far we've talked about the Holy Spirit with regard to John the Baptist and Jesus and then last time we did the Holy Spirit in Pentecost <laughs> Golly. this is the most carefully mowed section of our entire property apparently yeah, apparently um, so Anyway, so we're in the we're in the New Testament now with the Holy Spirit, um, and so we just covered the one on Pentecost, uh, which you can go back and listen to if you didn't get it. But at this point in the syllabus, because again we're we're just teaching through our theology syllabi that we have written, and so at this point we would normally do an excursus on spirit baptism, but we've already done three episodes on spirit baptism filling and indwelling, uh, so we would just say check those out and you can get a link for that down in the show notes. Um, but it's very important uh, and I think it helps clear up a lot of muddiness. And if you haven't listened to them, we're, we're really serious. We can't make you, but you should go back and listen to them because uh, so much confusion centers around those terms and phrases. Absolutely. So what we're going to do now is instead just talk about what would be the next issue, which are the ministries of the Holy Spirit uh, in in three different categories. So the role of the spirit in the lives of non-Christians, which is something that people don't often think about. Uh, then the role of the spirit as non-Christians become Christians. In other words, that conversion process. And then finally, the role of the Holy Spirit in the lives of Christians. And so that'll take a few episodes. And so today we're gonna focus in particular on the role of the spirit in the lives of non-Christians. and. It's important because there's a lot of, there's much talk and of course, understanding about the role of the spirit in the lives of Christians. Uh, and even as an unbeliever is converted, but many don't know much about the work of the spirit in the unbelieving world. Uh, again, we tend to think only about the work of the spirit within the church or the life of the believer, but the spirit is very much present and at work in the world at large. And he plays a very important role. And so today, we're just going to do a short episode here, taking a look at this this important job of the Spirit. All right. So with no further ado, we'll get into the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the lives of, first of all, non-Christians. Um, now, the key passage that we'll look at is John 16, verses 8 through 11. So let me read that. Uh, most of you have heard this. Uh, and he, when he comes, will convict, he being the Holy Spirit, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, concerning sin, because they do not believe in me, and concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you no longer see me, and concerning judgment, because a ruler of this world has been judged. All right, so there's the passage. Um, when it comes to the writings of John, both in his gospel and letters, it's always critical to understand how he uses that word, 
world. Very right? important. Yep. Um, it's a Greek word, cosmos. Um, and to understand him on this is to get much of his writings or misunderstand them, actually, uh, on this term gets the writings wrong because it's actually used in a technical manner. And so it's important to understand that whenever he employs the use of the term world or cosmos, uh, John always has in mind what's called a system that is hostile toward God. Mm -hmm. So it's not talking about the earth, the globe, or something like that. He's talking about that system of thinking that's simply opposed to God, mm -hmm. right? Uh, so the world is not a neutral position. It's not just a bunch of people kind of not knowing what they're doing. It, rather, it speaks of that system that's utterly corrupt by sin, and therefore it is in this active state of hostility or being in opposition to God. And so it is that this world to whom the Father sends the Son, which makes John 3.16 even more Amazing. Rich, yeah. Um, so in this passage, what John records is Jesus' teaching that when the Spirit comes, his job will be to convict, and that's a key word, convict the world, and he will convict the world of three things, namely sin, righteousness, and judgment. And so first of all, what does it mean that the Spirit will convict? Well, what does it mean to convict in this context is a, another way you could ask it. And, and first of all, it's a legal term. And so... Now, get this, and it'll help you. It's not speaking of feeling convicted. Um, you know, I really feel convicted yeah, about something. This is not a subjective. But, but I think that even now, knowing that, I still read it that way. I, I just because we use that term so frequently that it, it almost is like your default go-to meaning yeah, of yeah. The, when you hear convict. But that's not it. It's a legal term. And so he doesn't care about whether you uh, the Spirit will make you feel convicted uh, to do something. Um, it's, it's judicial language. In fact, the NIV actually renders it this way. He will prove the world to be in the wrong. That's a, it's an interpretational type of translation, but not bad. And in so, and so the context is the point is that he's going to convince those who are hostile toward God of their error and sinfulness. So the governing verb, verb is to convict. Keep that in mind. The emphasis is on the Spirit's actions toward the world in which he will prove them wrong or to be in the wrong from a legal perspective. And that's primarily a very objective work rather than subjective. Yeah. Now, now you might have a subjective response to that. Sure. So like, you know, in light of understanding my legal conviction before God. I'm guilty. I'm, it's, yeah. It's going to emote something in you potentially, but that's not the goal. That doesn't matter. Right. You, you may be, your response may be that you feel convicted, <laughs> yeah. right? You, you, you get the weight of that conviction yeah. that he has declared that you're guilty before God. And you like, oh no, what must I do to be saved? Right. So that would be a positive reaction, but you also will have the more frequent common reaction of uh, offended or I don't care. All of those are subjective, but it doesn't make the object of convicting work any less convicting. He, he it's it's a legal term where he is saying guilty. Exactly, got it. So now again, there are three three categories here that he lays out. Um, three categories of conviction that the Spirit will bring. Again, it's sin, righteousness, and judgment. Now. The interpretational question on this is, so what does that mean? Uh, what does it mean to convict regarding these three categories? Well, some people will interpret the passage to mean that the Spirit will convict people of their sin, 
then encourage them to pursue righteousness and all of that in light of God's coming judgment. And if you're just reading through it, that might be what you think. Yeah, you could preach that Yeah, wrongly. <laughs> <laughs> you would not get the meaning of the passage, but yeah. Um, but that is not what he's talking about here. That is not correct. And that's a great error that many commit um, and simply due to not, not understanding grammar. Um, so remember, the governing verb, as you pointed out, is to convict, which means that the Spirit is, again, bringing a conviction, which, which is a, it, it's a negative term. See, again, you say that, and immediately I think of that subjectively. It's, it's really hard to, and I know better. Yeah. But he brings a conviction, and I, I, get, I get that, oh, and then it's like, no, that's not what math means. Yeah. No, I understand. Yeah, I understand that. And um, the first time I worked through the passage, I was fighting that as well. Yeah. Because um, that's the natural tendency in us, I guess. But remember, the, the governing verb there is to convict, um, which means he br he's bringing a conviction. And it's a negative term where you're proving someone to be in the wrong. So just keep thinking about it in legal categories. Like, and when you convict a person of murder, you don't care if they feel guilty. It <laughs> <laughs> has nothing that, to do with it. It means yeah. that you are, in fact, guilty of murder. That's why you're the, the, the sense of what convict or convict means. Exactly. Yeah. And by the way, that's why I don't know if you knew this, but well, I can't speak for Wisconsin, but in California, the, um, you called people who were in the um, LA, in the LA court system, they went, they were in the sheriff's department in jail and they were called inmates. But the moment they were found guilty and went to a prison, they were, their term changed to convict. Now, I think our governor calls ours clients. I'm like, they're not clients. <laughs> a client is uh, somebody that you're looking to do some investments and help them out. Uh, Governmental residents. Yeah. <laughs> Anyhow, um. but that's why they're called convicts, is they've been convicted, they've been found guilty. Before the law, right. So, this governing verb of convict governs, and here's the key, it governs all three of those categories. Um, so again, you can't understand it as the Spirit convicts you of your sin, and then now you feel like you need to pursue righteousness, and then in light of God's coming judgment, um, he convicts in terms of these three categories, and we're going to explain what that means. In other words, the job of the Spirit is to prove the world that they are in the wrong but regarding all three of those categories. So, so he's going to prove them to be wrong regarding their understanding of their own sin. He's going to prove them to be in the wrong regarding what they regard as righteous, and then he's going to, or righteousness, and then he's going to prove them to be in the wrong regarding their own sense of what they understand to be judgment. And if you just look at Facebook, Twitter, or anything else that's out there in the social media world, Everyone thinks they're pretty okay. Yeah. I mean, how many, How? what was it, Jen Hatmaker? I think that's how you say her name. Well, she's, she's just a, yeah. oh, she's a messed up lady. Um, but she, she was she was waxing eloquently on the death of uh, Ginsburg. And she, she was uh, assigning things that are assigned only to God in her eulogy about her. And you could just see, a, I thought, here is a woman now that is showing more and more that she has no sense of really what sin, righteousness, or judgment really is. Because as I tweeted, this woman now 
knows what true justice looks like. Mm-hmm. That's all I could think of. When right. I found out she was dead, I was surprised. And I thought, whoa. <laughs> she just had a major category shift. Yeah, yeah. Here's, and, here's true justice and judgment, even though you've been doing it for, you know, 150 years or however old she was. Yeah. but I, I mean, it's, it's freaky to me. It just blew my mind away of, you, you are no longer who you think you are, and now you're now you are discovering that you're in a state that is far more horrid, right, and right, there right. is no escape now. Yeah. So so I I put in here here in I, I I threw in a different way you can understand these terms just to get the sense. So he's going to convict them regarding these three categories. So so sin, righteousness, and judgment. You could read it as he will convict them regarding their sin then their own self-righteousness, and then he'll convict them regarding their worldly judgments. Judgments they're making from within that system that's hostile and opposed to God. And when you say convict there, again, you mean prove they are guilty or determine that they're guilty. That they're in the wrong. Yeah. Yeah, they're wrong regarding what they think is sin, righteousness, and judgment. Okay, so with that, let's look at the categories a little bit more closely. Uh, The first one then, obviously, is sin. Um, In particular, the focus is going to be upon unbelief because of what he talks about in verses 8 and 9 of the same chapter. When he, the Spirit, when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. And then verse 9, concerning sin, why? Because they do not believe in me. So that's the first job of the Spirit is to convict of unbelief, show the error of that, that that you're guilty of that. Um, He will show the world that they are, in fact, unbelieving. That is, proving them to not be trusting in the true God, specifically the true God identified as Jesus. And that fits well with the whole theme of his gospel. Um, In John 20, verse 31, where he gives a purpose statement for the gospel. For, but these things have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So that's his stated purpose, right? Meaning that's the goal. So if you walk away from John's gospel not believing he's the Christ and the Son of God, you're guilty. Yeah. You're, you, you're now experiencing the conviction, convicting work of the Spirit. He, he's not making you feel bad about it. He's just simply saying, because you have not come to these conclusions, your 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 uh, your sin is that of unbelief and right. guilt. So it's not just sin in general. Uh, the specific sin he has in mind is that they're not believing in him. Because anything else really doesn't matter. Right. The, all of that flows out of exactly. the fact that you don't. Believe. Yeah. So John 3.18, it says, he who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already. There's that convicting thing, uh, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So that's the first job. The Spirit is to convict the world, again, that system that's hostile toward God, of their own sin. And the specific sin in mind is not believing that Jesus is who he said he was, namely the Son of God. And that's what he's talking about. Now, the second one, then, is the Spirit will convict the world of righteousness. And here, it should be understood as self-righteousness, another theme of John's gospel. So you you find Jesus chastening the Jews all of the time throughout this gospel for that. In Jesus's context, it was Jews who would pride themselves on frequenting the uh, temple, which is why he cleansed the temple. But it's also the Jews who found their righteousness in Torah faithfulness, law faithfulness, if you will. And so self-righteousness needs to be exposed in order for a person to understand that they need what 
what theologians would call an alien righteousness, meaning a righteousness outside of their own, to achieve a right standing before God. And so once Jesus ascends to the Father, the Spirit takes over that role. So Christ, I mean, he's just smacking them upside the head all the time, right? right? right. Showing that their righteousness, in fact, in the Sermon on the Mount, if, if your righteousness does not exceed that of the Pharisees, you have no place in the kingdom of God, which is a frightening term for most of those Jews because they thought the Pharisees were the standard. And Jesus is like completely unimpressed. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, yeah, now nah, that you're, you're, it has to be something greater than that. So, but he had a limited impact in that sense that it could only be to the people he was talking to. He leaves, and that's one of the reasons why it was better that the, that right. the son leaves, 100%. so that the spirit would then take this and it would make it a much broader effect. And so he takes over that role and he provides a ministry now to the entire world, which is what verse 10 says. Notice it says concerning righteousness. Why? Because I go to the Father and you no longer see me. So Jesus used to be the one exposing that self-righteousness. That was his a major component in his three-year ministry. But he's gone to the Father. Now the Spirit will prove to the entire world to be in the wrong concerning their approach to righteousness. Yeah, and we'll get into this once we get into the role of the Spirit in the church. But then since the Spirit indwells the church, the church now picks up that, that baton of Jesus, if you will, in exposing the self-righteousness of the world. And that's because the church is his body. Right. Um, and then third, the Spirit will convict the world of worldly or false judgment. Uh, you could phrase it that way. This, again, is another theme of John. So John 7, 24, do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. John 18, or 8, 15 through 16, you judge according to the flesh. I am not judging anyone. But even if I do judge, my judgment is true. Why? For I am not alone in it, but I and the Father who sent me. So again, by nature, the world's judgments are skewed, they're corrupt, they're sinful. We know this. The system of the world judges according to flesh and appearance. Now, in Jesus' day, this would have been the external law-keeping that was unable to make a true assessment of the heart and nature of a person. Uh, again, we see that with the Pharisees. Um, in our day, I mean, this is just a cheap example, but, you know, attempts to look holy um, <laughs> or, or even our attempts to not look holy because we don't want to appear as though we're trying to actually seek holiness in a twisted form of humility. Right. You I, know, I, <laughs> so Only Christians can just tie themselves up into a knot. I'm, I'm humble. I'm really pursuing yeah. humility and then feel convicted that that's an expression of pride. You're like... <laughs> Right. Don't you must be, be a don't, miserable human godly. being. <laughs> yeah. Like it's wrong to look holy or something. But um but, a, but, but you would have in mind virtue signaling. Absolutely. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Which is the, the favorite pastime of evangelicals today. Big Eva. Yeah. So I just learned out what that meant. I saw that, yeah. You didn't know. I, I don't thought know who it was made a woman. Up. The first time we heard that was I think Phil Johnson. Oh, I had never heard it. I think. And Someone will me, I sure. pronounced in my mind Big Eva, and I thought Eva was some woman. <laughs> <laughs> well, I felt very accomplished when I found out what it really meant. Like, that makes so much more sense. <laughs> See what happens when you get on Twitter? The yeah. world opens up. Yeah, I'm on Twitter now. You may or may not want to follow me. I am under the, what, ampersand or whatever that thing or is at. Yeah. At. Exegete, X-A-G-E-T-E, X-A-G-E-T-E. Feel free to follow me. I just mostly rant. 
Um, so, so yeah, that, that's kind of what happens within the church. In a secular sense, we see this as well in politics. Many moral claims are made about wickedness, evil, corruption. Um, you see this all the time. I mean, on both sides of the aisle, just that moral superiority. And it's just like neither one of you are coming from a true sense of judgment. It, all of it's coming from a worldly judgment. Um, they're, they're not coming from a place where you, you fear God or have his perspective on truth or justice. Um, it's worldly judgment, and it will be proven to be in the wrong. Um, I would also say this strikes a blow to the current social justice movement, which is something born and bred within this system of worldly judgments. Uh, you see this primarily in the sense that it's, I mean, it's Marxism. This is an yeah. ideology. This is a worldview. Yeah. Um, sadly, the church has swallowed it. But um, what are they doing? Well, they're determining justice and righteousness. I mean, that's what this is all about, social justice, right. um, equality, equity, things like that. But they're determining that justice and righteousness, I would argue, from a very false perspective, from a worldly system. And so it is a shame that the church has bought into that. And I would even argue that this is one of those great examples of how you can quench the spirit. That's a good point. Build on that, uh, if you don't mind. Yeah, the, in the, we're not letting the spirit nor the spirit-inspired scriptures determine our understanding of justice, but the worldly system and these worldly judgments. It's one of the things I think is so insidious about the whole movement is they've hijacked Bible terms, like well, justice yeah. and righteousness. And now the church is like, oh, they're using our terms, so maybe we should listen. It's like, no, you shouldn't. They're using your terms, but with a false definition coming from a false ideology or worldview. Well, thinking about the books we've been reading, so Color of Compromise, um, the woke church. Uh, those are two written by purported Christians, and yet their their whole foundation is what you just described here. It it's not flowing out of a scripture and then informing society, but it's rather flowing out of society and then borrowing. Well, that's hard for me to say that word. You say it. Borrowing. Yeah, my R's aren't good enough for that. <laughs> um, it uh, those terms and then borrowing the scripture to. Help supplement Holster, as yeah. if, or they back it in and try to squeeze yeah. it into scripture somehow. I, we do it all the time. Yeah, so that that would be a quenching of the spirit and a quenching of his true dictation of what justice is or righteousness is. But in the end, it doesn't matter because he's gonna, you know, he's gonna work <laughs> it all out. Um, because again, there's that objective conviction that's being brought. Um, not surprisingly, then verse eleven makes it clear that all false judgment is ultimately connected to Satan. Um, Verse 11 says, concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. So simply put, Satan is the God, he is the ruler, he is the father of this age, as the Bible says. He has already been judged. And so Jesus makes it clear here that all those who follow him or operate in step with his worldly system have been judged as well. Uh, Satan is that master of delusion. And so those who follow him and judge as he judges don't even know that they have him as the ruler, and yet he, he is still their father. They are curled up comfortably in his lap, according to 1 John 5, 19. And that's, that's really, though, frightening because you think about how um, we, we've said this repeatedly, that this whole social justice, BLM, critical race, it's really been a point of division for the church, and it's sad, but I think it's good at the other way because it does have a way of revealing where your authority ultimately rests um, on both sides. I mean, you got the hyper Republican conservative and the hyper 
liberal Democrat who are both claiming Christ and they're both guilty because they're bringing in all kinds of other things rather than just the spirit inspired word. But, but you really do see that the for the, when it comes right down to it, the place of a person's authority does not rest frequently with God's word. And, um, I, I think it's just going to continue to help define and make people come to have to wrestle with and come to conclusion of what is it do they really believe yeah. now that now that you might lose your job or you might be persecuted or lose money or something like that it's, it's shocking uh, the way people are scattering and framing themselves in ways I don't think they should but yeah well I think the the challenge too with some of this stuff in our day is you know kind of the the thing that just makes everything okay is if you throw out the word nuance. Oh, oh we just need to be more nuanced. That came with Obama. Uh, when Obama came on, he would say things and, and they would just wax eloquently, the pundits, on how, isn't it refreshing to have somebody with a nuanced view of justice or a, a nuanced view of immigration? And yeah. um, Well, uh, in, in a pluralistic, syncretistic society, we, we don't like black and white. We don't like absolutes. We can't just call wrong, wrong, and good, good. We need to have a, a more nuanced, refined, robust conversation and perspective on certain things. And so now in evangelicalism, this is where we're at. Or Big Eva. <laughs> Big Eva, yeah. Um, <laughs> you can't just say, here's what the Bible says. It's like, well, yeah, here's what the Bible says, but you know, due to common grace, they're sort of correct in some certain ways. And so we need to have a nuanced partnership and conversation and you end up just having a tangled mess where no one understands everything and your average churchman is utterly confused and guilted yeah. on things they don't understand. Yeah. I put the blame there too because you've got a lot of people who are sitting in pews so to speak and they're just confused and so they're buying into something because they trust their pastors, they trust these leaders and so they're like, yeah, I guess I'm wrong. Um, it's it really it's just like back in the Old Testament, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, where he is just trashing the priests, these false shepherds. You know, they should have been the guardians of truth, and instead they're leading away the people. You know, um, and now we've done it all over again in the church. But anyhow, well, in the end, this convicting work of the Spirit will con uh, will serve two purposes. So in the case of the one who will become a believer, it will be used actually by the Spirit to convert a dead heart. Um, but then you have the opposite side. In the case of the one who is rejecting, remains an unbeliever, it's going to function as the evidence on the day of judgment for why the rejecter will be without excuse. So remember, this conviction is not primarily a subjective feeling of conviction, rather it's First and foremost, an objective judicial conviction where the mallet comes down and says, you are guilty of this now. Um, and he is a spirit of truth and all spirit, or let me say that again, and all truth will come to light on that day of judgment. So those are, uh, there are other passages that we could look at, right? But this is the one of the most explicit ones regarding the role of the spirit and unbelievers. Hopefully though, it, we, we've helped you a bit. Next time, what we'll look at is the ministry of the Holy Spirit as a non-Christian becomes a Christian. That's always cool. In other words, what we're going to look at is the role of the Spirit in the conversion experience. John 3. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so, so then, uh, until then, make sure to continue to tune in. 
we would ask you to join the conversation. We really do want to hear your thoughts on the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Uh, we'd appreciate it if you give us a five-star rating, leave a review over on iTunes, and don't forget to like, share, comment, rate, review, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, also, though, do connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and keep telling friends. <laughs>